there's so much more that I can do and so many more stories to be told. We're only scratching the surface. You're listening to Strong Asian Lead, a podcast about Asian Americans and entertainment. I'm your host, David Moria. And today we have a special guest on the podcast, Justin Chan. He's a Korean-American film director and actor, and he's got a new movie coming out this week, Blue Bayou. And we're actually dropping this podcast on Friday the 17th because today is the release day. So I do hope that this is an accompaniment to your uh, going to see the movie, maybe it's in your car ride there or your uh, car ride back. We want to share our interview with Justin Chan. Uh, it was great to chat with him, and you're here in the podcast, and he's, uh, he's living the dream. So I hope you take today to go to the theaters, buy your ticket, watch the film, get some popcorn, do the thing, wherever you're at. It's, it's opening weekend. Let's make another box office open. We want to keep making this, uh, this pie a lot bigger. Let's go support as many films as we can all the time. Also, this whole week and the upcoming weeks are the Los Angeles Asian American Pacific Film Festival. So get your tickets. I'm going to go enjoy the theaters again. I mean, it's scary. It's scary to go out there. I don't like going everywhere. But if you're willing to get out there and take your wet ones and pocket sanitizers and go watch a movie, like, it's a fun experience. I think I've seen, like, three movies in the past couple of weeks, and which I haven't seen movies in over over a year <laughs> in in this way. It's so it's weird. Uh, but it's a good experience. I really enjoyed, like, the focus that I could put down my phone and just watch a movie. Uh, I feel like I get distracted on movies and TV uh, no matter what I'm doing. So, and also going to see it with friends. Like, I've been able to see a movie with friends in a long time and just go hang out afterwards, go get a taco. Like, that's the, that's the life I want to live. And it's been a long time. So, it, it feels it does feel good to go out and I'd like to go see more movies. So, get your tickets. There's a lot of places to go watch these films and... You know, we're hoping to open some sort of program that we can watch films. Uh, there's a lot of films that are out there that we don't ever hear about, know about, and, um, you know, we want to watch them. I've been watching a lot of old classics that I've never heard of, and uh, <laughs> I actually bought VHS tapes and uh, digitized them. That was pretty cool. Um, now I can see it. Uh, my grandma has an old VCR, and, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's like you can watch the past. Like, I, I watched these films and it's very different. You know, I watched George Takei and Year of the Dragon. Um, whoa, like, I've never seen George Takei like this. You should watch it. Like, it's so good. Um, it's a little wild and definitely kind of ahead of its time, but it's kind of dark and based on play, right, by uh, Frank Chin. And, you know, it, again, all these storytellers, we don't know about them. We should start we need to start learning our education of cinema history because there actually is a lot of television film and film out there that have been uh, making and breaking barriers. I binge watched through All American Girl with Margaret Cho, fantastic t- sitcom. Like it, okay, maybe the end it wasn't that great because they find like three white guys, like famous white dudes. I kind of I got their names, um, but they uh, it was like an apartment buddies kind of thing. They, they kind of they cut the whole family. <laughs> I think that's why I failed because they cut the whole family right they uh if you haven't seen the seen the whole tv series it's 19 episodes that's really that's really strong for like a asian american series back in 19s like but we've never seen it you can buy the dvd for like 10 bucks right go buy it go watch it that shit's cool <laughs> um and so much fun i thought it was hilarious because it also and i think that's what in a way yeah there was problematic things about the show 
but and and if you watch the dvd i think it has bonus features that says you know they're like the, the reason why it got canceled was because the asian american community didn't embrace it they said it wasn't for them right it's like it, this didn't represent my family so they denied it and so the cast the cast and the writers all felt really bad about the show and decided like kind of cancel it and change they tried to change it up and i think it just failed it was a terrible ending the sitcom but when they had the family for 18 episodes it was really great so this is the same deal that was back in the 90s and got canceled what are we going to do now that we can go to movies and we're embracing our uh, asian american storytellers like this is what we need to keep building so i hope you go see this watch this movie and uh, go and see the theaters and I have to uh, tell you right now, we're going to have a uh, kind of a small announcement in the end of this episode. But until then, uh, here's Justin, our interview with Justin Chan. Hey, Justin. Hey. Hey, David. How you doing? I'm doing all right today. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm in the middle of a production. So this is my day off. So I'm just trying to just survive. I'm sure you got a lot of interviews <laughs> today too, in between the times. Is that what's going on? Yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good. And then I'm more than I'm happy to do it. It's just like 10 million things going on at once. Yeah. So it's crazy. It's crazy. I feel you. Where are you calling in from today? Hawaii. I, I live in Hawaii now. I moved here in April. My kid starts preschool next week. We're probably going to stay here for the foreseeable future for my kid. That's pretty cool. Oh, man. And mm-hmm. now you shot uh, another film over there, A Man Up, right? My first film. Yeah, yeah. My first film, I shot a very, very, very unique film. I was Actually, I was looking for it too today. I was like, I can only find it on Amazon, but it says it's out. You can't yeah, what find happened, it in the country. Yeah. What happened was Lakeshore bought it and they're no longer around. So like uh-huh. Lakeshore had it and then they got bought by another company. And then the other company, they have just have all their whole library and it's not at the top of their lease list to do anything with. So it's just been sitting there, but I get it back. I get the rights back to the film next September. So like basically in a year, I get it back and then I'll put it back up, find places for people to find it. But I love that film, even though it's just uh, like a silly sort of stoner comedy. It's like the impetus to everything else. I just saw like how powerful directing my own films can be, even though it's like a silly film. I, I, I love that film. Yeah, I saw the trailer and I was just like, this, why haven't I seen this? This is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to yeah. check it out. So I can't wait for it to come back. That'd be great. Uh, thanks, man. Thanks. For right on. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time to join us on the Strong Asian Lead Podcast. I'm really glad to have you on and just get to speak with you today. It's pretty rad. Sweet. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. I would love to know, I grew up in Ontario, California. So suburbs of LA. I grew up in Orange County kind of areas. What was your Asian American influence and community like? during your growing up years, did you have a lot of influence and people around you or was that something that came later in life? Yeah. So I was born in Garden Grove and Garden Grove was a super sort of Korean area at the time. It's not anymore, but so Garden Grove and a little Saigon, like Westminster, Bolsa, that whole area. I was born there. I did Taekwondo and all that stuff, but I mostly grew up in Irvine and go to Garden Grove to do our grocery shopping and all that stuff. Growing up, we would go to Koreatown few times a month but my particular neighborhood was mostly white and jewish but by the time i got into junior high there's a huge influx of taiwanese chinese and korean people into irvine and so when i went to junior high i was like shocked there's so many sort of asian people and that was like 92 and then uh, 93 and 92 93 around there and then 
yeah, I kind of got both as like a super young. I got like some of that, like more suburban white vibes. And then, and then junior high to like super Asian American experience. Yeah. Yeah. How did that change you over time? Did that, was that a cultural influx of so many Asians coming around, make you feel like you wanted to explore more of the culture or would you feel like an outsider? Cause I grew up, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. It was um, like, <laughs> yeah. What are you, what are you half of? I'm, I'm mixed Japanese American. I'm fifth generation too. Okay. So I'm very like American. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Very different. Um, because my kid is, yeah, my kid's also Hapa. So I wonder like my grandkids will probably look white. I don't know. But, uh, but uh, it was just a different time. I got to say with Gook, like that actually happened to my family. We got looted during the riots. My dad had a store in Paramount right across the bridge from Compton. And we spent, I spent a lot of time there in the South Bay and the nineties were a lot like pretty rough. It was a lot of gang banging and just a different time. There was like a lot of shootings. And at the time, even in the like Westminster was like a lot of home invasion robberies. And it was just a different wild time. Now, if you go to Westminster and even Garden Grove or even Koreatown, it's way safer. So I think um, this is a very once in a lifetime experience. It's never, I don't think it'll be like that again in those areas and especially being Asian American, that's, that stuff isn't tolerated anymore. <laughs> yeah. You speak up about it. You got to get out there and change it. I think that's, you know, you've just done that with just your film career, making people see uh-huh. what's going on and what people are able to relate to and just film wise and make us feel proud of to who we are. I think that's really important yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of that, you went to business school and went to, did the Silicon Valley thing. And I've heard of other vineyards just didn't like doing that. What brought you into the film scene? It could have been any other career out of the business world. I majored in business because I didn't know what else. it was like, but there was really not many things that interested me. And, and I just, it's exposure too. There was nobody sitting me down saying, Hey, these are your choices. It was just like, figure it out. Like you're out in the world and you're just trying to find your place. But my dad was an actor in Korea in the sixties and he acted from 10 to 25. He actually, the woman who won the Oscar for Minari, hmm. my dad would do teleplays with her as a kid. So like he did that. So I grew up watching his black and whites. And when I started to, when after I did that internship in Silicon Valley, I just was trying to weigh my options. And I start, I, I just thought about my dad and I just enrolled in a two-year acting program outside of USC. And it was more of an experiment. Like at the time, that was like early 2000s. I got into college, what, 99? 2000, and so early 2000s, you never saw Asian American actors really that that didn't have accents or weren't delivery boys or part of the triad story of CSI or whatever it was. So it wasn't as viable. So it was an experiment. And But then I just fell in love with the art. I just fell in love with the idea that you could express yourself and that if you could get emotional and it was accepted, it was encouraged actually. And growing up, those things weren't encouraged. Right. So it felt very like liberating. Yeah. I feel like that's an Asian culture thing too. It's just not being able to show the emotion in Japanese culture. It's gaman. Don't, don't show the emotion, be very tolerant of what's going on and hold back all those emotions, but to play a character yeah. and be people who are different emotional at that point, I think that's brings out a lot. I think all that repression comes out maybe that's a lot to, to work with as well yeah 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 <laughs> um now you started as an actor you've done acting for years i don't know like what 
since 2005-ish on full credits and maybe some more. What pushed you into doing writing and directing those stories that you wanted to build from? In particular, there was a particular experience I had where it was after Man Up. I, I, I felt, okay, how come none of these things that I see on television or film represent like my experience or authentically what I've been through as an Asian American. I made Man Up because I felt like YouTube was like really a level playing field with for Asian Americans at the time, 2009, 2010. It just felt like they were dominating the space and like it showed the industry that like people consume their content. It's not because it was the people deciding. Teaming up with Kev Jumba, I felt like, okay, we're doing something revolutionary and exciting. At the time, this was before everything, like this was 10 years ago before any of the crazy rich Asians or any of that stuff. And we just made a film. But after that, I did this television show and there's a particular director and he was having trouble blocking a scene and I knew how to fix it. So I tried to raise my hand and talk and he stopped me very promptly. And he said, what is it that you're paid to do here? And I was like, what do you mean? He's what are you getting paid to do on the set? And I said, acting. He said, exactly. So shut the F up and do your job. And I was like, wow, okay, okay, cool. I don't know how you get the opportunity to be in this position of power and you don't know how to do a simple thing. It just felt really, it was good. It was good because it, it, it made me really evaluate what my position in the industry was. And what that was is I was just needed this type of character and I fit that role. And I have a particular skill set of acting and I'm dependable. So just do your job. So with that in mind, I was like, okay, I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to just be, I want a little bit more autonomy and control about what ends up on the screen. So it was really like a starting point for me to think about directing and writing in a much more substantial way. Yeah, I'm mad about that. <laughs> that was like years ago. But <laughs> that pisses me off, man. That just some things like that and people just aren't listening. I mean, I know actors are supposed to follow the directors and they don't have a lot of power in anything. If you know how to fix something, it's a contributing, this is a team effort here. If someone's got an idea. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Filmmaking is entirely like, it's contrary to what people think, it, it requires a, an entire unit, a team. Of course, a director is like the captain in the, and steers a ship and it's his vision, but everybody has an important job and it requires synergy. And, and I, it, it's not like... I was just making a suggestion and I, but what I realized there is as an Asian American, I don't have any power because I'm not a star. And I, and even beyond that, like the system, we're not meant, we're not allowed to even become stars. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Stars need to be made and constructed in a sense. And we aren't given those opportunities because when, when we try to make a film with Asian American lead, they go, there's nobody bankable. And I'm like, nobody can be bankable unless if you give them the shot. Like, mm -hmm. how do we get the foreign sales numbers that they always talk about where like in Italy or something that you're a bankable actor if nobody's ever allowed them to be in front of the screen. It's this systemically racist system that that they use to justify the gatekeeping of it all. And, and that's more of the analytical way of looking at it. But I, having been in the industry, I don't know how much is intentional, but I definitely think it's present. It's undeniable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, I keep getting DMs and emails all the time just saying, Hey, this happened to me. And one of the things that I even read in an earlier article you had was that the accents, auditioning with accents, they're just asking for accents to do them. 
I get that all the time. Has you've been in here for you know, the industry for long enough? Has the industry changed? Has there been a significant change besides more representation on screen, which we're seeing? Has the systemic issues has it developed? In your opinion, we're now allowed to be like part of the supporting cast and very rarely the leads, specifically for like bigger studio stuff. Like it's very rare. There's maybe one like Henry Golding right now and maybe Steven Yoon soon. But other than that, no, if you talk to financiers or people putting together these movies, you say, hey, what about this person? What about that person? They go, no, no form value. Very tough. You can be behind the camera. We have James Wan, Justin Lin. John Chu, but your face is not on the screen. So it's changed. We have people like Asian Americans of different creeds, orientations, men, women, all of that, but not necessarily is someone leading projects where they're in a position of maximum visibility. Like you have Snake Eyes, but at the same time, yes, that's a breakthrough, but did we not already have Jackie Chan and Jet Li doing the action stuff? Yeah, it's you know, always. Yeah. And if it's not even martial, it's still action. Mm -hmm. Like, when are we allowed to do Goodfellas? When are we allowed to do our Goodfellas? When are we allowed to do our sort of not based on source material content that's an original is almost impossible, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're, we're, we're aching for that thing. Instead of basing it off of something that has the IP that we they know they think that's going to already have a fan base or it's based off something they can relate to. We want something that original and that's, that is Asian American or even just a yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, look at, yeah, look at Will Smith has a film coming out where he plays Venus and Serena Williams' dad. Mm -hmm. Would that story be allowed to be told if it was Asian American? No, I, I very highly doubt it right now. Yeah. It'd be a very tough sale. So they would try to input some sort of famous person in addition to that core story. It'd be incredibly difficult to get that film made with an Asian American cast. Yeah, it's always gotta have somebody else to, to bank on. Yeah, and it's, and unfortunately, it's gotta most likely be white or a few African Americans. It's still gotta, got a ways to go. It's definitely got better though, I would say. Mm -hmm. What do you think the biggest problem in Hollywood is when it comes to Asian storytelling? Is that the problem or is there something that you think is a bigger problem? And what would be like a suggested solution? Yeah. Filmmaking is very expensive and I don't blame these financiers. Like they want to mitigate the risk and it's an investment. They have to, they're beholden to people who hold the strength and so it's not simple. It's not a simple solution, but because filmmaking is so expensive, it's an expensive art form, like it takes resources and to get access to those resources, it just requires a lot of taking chances. So people have to be willing to lose a lot of money. How do you convince people to be okay with losing money? Because it's such a risky investment. So in terms of solutions, I don't know. I'm not like a guru in that sense. I'm not, I don't know. I don't have the answers. The only thing I can do personally is to make my own films and be vigilant about what I choose to, to make films about. You know, I can't, I don't think like I'd be able to get resources to make a $30 million film about just an original Asian American story, but I can make a film for 5 million. I don't know, like three to 5 million. But even then, even then it's, they want to know, who's in it and how it's, what the financial model is going to be. So I don't have a specific solution. All I know is we can just like 
Scorsese, De Palma, and Cassavetes, and all those people did in the 70s, they made films, independent films, speaking their truth, and they were able to make much more darker stories and stories that resonated with them by doing independent film. And I think that is a way to become a part of the culture. And then slowly, maybe it'll trickle, continue to trickle uh, up towards the studio system. I think television is much more of a space where people are willing to take more risks, especially with streamers and pushing on that front, I think will be super effective. I just directed half a season for a show called Pachinko based off of the book. And uh, that's a super risky show, but it's television. And it's streamer, it's Apple. So, but it's in English, Japanese, and Korean. And it's a very, I think, a highly risky show. But making films like Blue Bayou, I think, are very important. Like, they are truthful. And you can even see that a company is influential as focus, feels there's incredible value in it. And I think approaching it that way, I think, is very effective. Yeah. And I think having, and having stories told like this, I don't know if Apple would tell something like this. It needs yeah. to come from the community and really, and, Taking a taking a real good look at the, the inequalities of our system, but also in our communities, because this is a story. Blue Bayou is not a story we hear very often. And speaking of Blue Bayou, like, how did you prepare for this role? Where did this, you know, come from? Like, you've done so much this for this film. You wrote, directed, acted in it. So, what other, you know, research and where did this story come from? So, I had a lot of adoptee friends growing up. I'd been exposed to it even as a kid that that was a thing. But I started hearing through the community, I think 2015 or 16, that this was happening, that adoptees were being deported. And to me, it was just absolutely shocking because I would think that if a child is brought overseas by US citizens, that should automatically grant their citizenship. They had no choice in coming over. Also money's exchanged because of these agencies, it's a business for them. And and also the US government is acknowledging that a child is traveling from a different country and being taken by a U.S. family. So I just was very shocked. And then asking, doing more research and through articles and videos and also through the community, found out that it's not like something that can be easily reversed once you've been ordered to deport. It's a very long, hard process to even, almost impossible for them to come back because they look at you like you, you came into the country illegally. I also found out that nobody knew about this. Very few really understood that this was happening or even within the Asian American community, let alone the rest of the, the United States. So I felt a conviction to, to tell the story and, and represent the Asian American experience, not just like these stories that we know, but also like to include the adoptee experience into sort of our Asian American storytelling fabric. And I, I, it was a reason I wanted to do it. And also ultimately... This film is for adoptees and it's to possibly get the right people to watch it so that maybe something can change and the people who are going through this now can either stay and the people who have been deported can possibly come back. That's a bigger picture, but it it's definitely not been easy. This film was very hard to get made. Yeah. The collective consciousness of this issue is not there. I have three Korean American adoptees cousins. So my uncle mm. adopted them. And so... I think you might have thought about this a couple of years ago. I was like, well, I hope that never happens to them because they've been here forever. Yeah. And so, you know, I started to hear more stories and what people are doing. And just even to see this film is like, that's really difficult. Even a, is the situation in itself is just so yeah. hard. So I feel like there's, 
we don't hear about it. People get deported and then we just, it doesn't get noticed or anything like that. It doesn't, it slips through the cracks. So having yeah. this visually seen, it could be just an, an NBC article and that would be something that'd be passed over, but to see it on a family go through such emotional turmoil is really powerful. And that's what makes it stick with you. Yeah. That's what's really important here. So now, what did you interview other adoptees who have been deported or who are afraid of being deported? And yeah, how did you get your character to be so like real? I had a bunch of adoptee consultants that, and one in particular that, that stuck with me the entire time, but hundreds of hours of talking and making sure I get the adoptee experience. You know, in terms of the actual deportation of it all, I consulted with a immigration lawyer and then just research and then before we filmed, Sinti, I, I contacted adoptees for advocacy and they're helping with legislation and ran the script by them. And this guy, Christopher Larson, who is, has been ordered to deport and is awaiting the process to, and has been fighting to change legislation. And, but also I, I did a, it wasn't before the film, but after filming, I, spoke with a girl who part of the same organization, Anissa Drusdo, who's also in the end credits, who has been deported to Panama. And, and we talked for a while about her experience. And yeah, I tried to do everything I could with my own resources to keep it as truthful and authentic as possible. But I'll never understand what it feels like to be adopted or deported um, or ripped away from my family. Even when I was making Miss Purple, there was somebody on my crew that had to leave early one day and I didn't really have too much of a problem, but I found out later, he told me that he's a dreamer mm -hmm. and just talking with him a bit, I understood, man, this is no joke. I'm married to a Russian woman. And so we had to go through the whole process of getting her naturalized and getting her into the country. And I didn't realize how fortunate I was just being born in this country and how intensive the immigration process is and how there's a finality to it too. It's once you mess up and you get, you actually get kicked out of the country. It's a really long road trying to get back in. Yeah. I hear too many stories like that. And, and just people who are afraid of being that deported, that's a scary thing. Or just being able to live your life here in America, you already lived most of your life here in America and either be discriminated against, put incarcerated, being deported, all that just family separation is just not a joke. And people really need to, I don't know. I, I don't know what, I'm not a policy person. I'm an activist, but I don't know how policies work the best way. Yeah. But I hope that things would change, especially for something like this. You feel like you've been in America for most, if not almost all your life. And to be ripped away from your families, it's just dehumanizing and just like, just policy. Yeah. It's just, you just want laws to govern our lives. Yeah. And I'm with you. I'm similar to you in the sense that I'm not really politically that knowledgeable or that active, but I would like to say that I do advocate and it doesn't make any sense to me. There's a child citizenship act of 2000 that allows people who are adopted after 2000 to automatically be granted citizenship. It doesn't like there's been horror stories where even then like people have still been a, deported, but I just don't understand why it's not retroactive. Like why there's a hard line in the sand that it's like after 2000, but not before 2000, like you're saying, it is really just policy and how do we change that and how do we find a way for it to be for any adoptee brought from another country 
that that's definitely above my pay grade. But the thing I can do is make a film creating a conversation so that maybe it gets to those people that makes those type of decisions. Yeah, I think that's what film and television is supposed to do to a, to a degree. And it's always the entertainment half of it, but the impact and the way it visualizes society to show and say, this is what happens in real life. And just say, how can we change it? And so if we're not having that conversation, if, if art is not showing us and giving us the message to talk with our peers about it and understand it a lot better, we're not going to have the conversation. It just goes way over our head. Yeah. We don't hear about it. Nothing. So yeah. what have you learned about the deportation process and through making this film? Is there something that was like really surprising to you? Yeah. It's nothing to mess with. It's so, it's so cutthroat. And that once you get caught up in that system, it's, you're in their tight grip. It's hard to get out of. And it costs, the other thing that people don't talk about is that how much money it costs. If you don't have money, it's almost, it's so incredibly difficult to even stay just for that fact, because lawyers cost money. You, not every you know, case is a pro bono case. The legal system is such a financially depleting system. So it's when you get caught up in this, do you have the resources like to stick it out? It's, that's why I learned it's a very scary machine. My sister's a public defender and I know firsthand like that it's a costly system. And also it's, they expect you to know everything and how are you possibly supposed to know everything about policy and the laws and the rules, especially if you were brought as an infant, you weren't even thinking about, you didn't even know to do anything. Like it's just, that's why I think it's a government's responsibility because they were brought here when they weren't super conscious of, about, about what was going on. Yeah. They weren't reading contracts and signing papers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they weren't the ones that were, were, should be, were, even should be responsible for dealing with that because they're children. Right. Yeah, it's a really tough. And thanks for bringing this to light. It's not something I've thought about myself. So to see something like Blue Bayou was really powerful to me. Now, going back to some filmmaking and productions, what have you learned about making this film after you've made so many other films? What's the progression? Have you, what was the, uh, the most biggest thing you learned making this one? I think the fact that filmmaking is going to be hard no matter what. It's never going to be easy, no matter what, like any level of it, whether it's a micro budget up to the biggest tentpole films, it's all filmmaking. It's all similar in the terms of what you're trying to do, but it's never easy. That's a common factor. It's trying to get a lot of people together for a very concentrated amount of time to be on the same page about a certain vision and getting, getting everybody to operate a very high level for stay focused is very hard. What I have learned is that being honest and truthful in what you're trying to do is always, you can't go wrong in that. I don't know if it'll always turn out like great, but that's something that is a North star that it's purpose-wise, it's hard to go wrong. And ultimately what I have learned is to ask myself why I'm making the film in the first place. And if I can't answer that question, just don't do it. Yeah. 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 I think that's it. That is that guiding star, the why of doing it just as the director, yeah. as the storyteller, not just, it needs to be made. So why am I doing it? Why should I be the person to do it? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Now, as we're closing up, I have a couple of last questions. So what's the goal? What's the dream in five, 10 years from now? Do you have, you have that further North star? I'm living the dream right now. I get to tell stories that matter to me and I get to have autonomy about how I do it. And I getting 
the films out in a very influential way in, in being considered in a critical sense and getting to showcase these type of films at festivals like Cannes and Sundance and be recognized by those institutions. And I don't necessarily think I, I have to have a goal of doing like a $200 million film or that's just not my purpose per se. If it aligns with my values and, and why I'm doing operating behind the camera, then that'd be wonderful. But I want to do more of this. I want to do, mm-hmm. I want to do films that I can be emotionally invested in and that matter to me when I sit in the theater and watch it, that I'm still just as emotional the day that I committed to making the film, you know, and that's blue by to me. When I was in the theater, I can watching it with the audience for the first time, I was just as emotional and just as convicted as I was when I first was like, this needs to be told. I mean, that's a good feeling because mm-hmm. I feel like my life has some sort of value. Yeah, no, that's, I think it's a lot of dreams. And so to even just hear you say you're living your own dream, that feels really good and inspiring to myself. And I'm sure a lot of other people is like you're, you've made it to your ideal place of being. I think it's really cool, man. Yeah. I hope I can keep at it. Yeah. It's a very it's a difficult industry. It's very in, it's very, can be fickle. And so for the time being, I feel very grateful. Yeah. Do you have anybody who inspires you to continue and improve your craft? Oh, so many, whether it's the Korean directors who are just such crazy visionaries to you know, the Scorsese of the world and the Coppolas of what they did for their communities, bringing, normalizing their communities and down to even like the Safdie brothers and Sean Baker and what they do, they speak their truth and they are vigilant about the art that they make. And to people like Ava DuVernay who and Spike Lee, who are just like repping their community from day one. And just being consistent in that way. But there's so much more that I can do and so many more stories to be told. We're only scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. Asian community is so diverse and so in-depth that there is so many stories to tell. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a lot, lot to be brought up too. The last question, yeah. what's the, you know, any final, not final advice, but any advice for upcoming Asian American filmmakers and storytellers? It's always keep doing and keep trying, but do you have anything that's specific? I feel like, you know, when I talk to a lot of younger creators, they want it all now. They want it to happen now. They want it to just be making huge films or whatever now. And it's just typically not the way it works because there's so much money and pressure involved. Like it's good to go through the ringer and learn and, and be patient. But I think what I'd like to say is it, it's treat it like your life depends on it. It's, it's difficult. And if you expect it to be easy in any way, ooh, you're in for a, a very difficult, more more difficult time. The, the sooner you can understand that it, it's a very harsh industry and that you're going to have to be resilient and just no matter what people say and, and how they treat you to move forward, that's the best advice I could give. And don't expect it to happen in, even in five years. Like it's, it's a journey that doesn't stop. It's, if you think about it, if you think about it as something that like, oh yeah, I'll do this till I'm 60 or something, then automatically I think that's going to, you're going to have a hard time. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's great. Patience, right? Everything's patience. <laughs> patience and hard work. Like you've got to put, you have to put yeah. the work in. Yeah. And Justin, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And I am looking forward to when it premieres and everything coming out. It's thank great. you. 
once again, I want to thank Justin for his time. And if you haven't watched his other work too, like go watch his, go watch everything. Miss Purple and like the classic Gook. Like, come on. If you haven't watched Gook, like go watch it on Gook. It's on Amazon Prime. Like Justin said, patience and hard work, you know, and I, and I truly believe in what he's saying. Thank you, Focus Features, for putting us together. And, and just two announcements. Uh, we will be taking a break for a while. Uh, it's been hard to keep up with the podcast these days. So we're going to take a quick break. This is, will be our season finale, if you will. And we will come back in a few weeks. We're going to uh, set up some new interviews and just kind of get things back in order. We have a new team, and I'm going to introduce them now. Uh, of course, we have Dennis Michael Broussard, who's been our camera designer for a while. But our new teammates are uh, Gina Kim. She will be our new podcast producer and getting everything on the internal side of the podcasting world uh, to um, get everything back on, on track and, and keep things working. In that podcasting team, we have Rachel Michiko Whitney, who will be our our outreach manager, and she'll be finding new people for us to have a conversation with. So uh, thank you, Rachel. We also have Vanya Shruti, who is our new podcast editor. We have Muhammad Saeed, who's doing our show notes and our transcriptions, which you can find on our website at strongagentlead.com. And then we have our social media team, our new Ken Kevin Phoenix, who is our content producer and poster, and Jenny D. La Fuente, who is our podcast director. We also have Rowena Riley G. Young Kim, who is uh, helping us with our brand voice. Uh, <laughs> I did the podcast, the website a year, like a year ago, and it really needs some updating. Like we have new words and new terms that we would like to uh, implement, and she's really heading uh, our branding voice. I think it's really cool. So uh, I'm excited to see where Strong Asian Lead goes in the next uh, few months and year. It's going to look, look really different. We also have Keith June Watabayashi, who's working on sponsorship outreach. So. Uh, I'm super happy to have this team. Thank you, everybody on my team, to just, oh my gosh, things are going to run so smoothly with this new team, and I'm super excited. And our second announcement is Asian Film Network. We have been building a uh, new web app uh, for everybody to get on. I don't know, I might have mentioned here, you might have heard in the clubhouse, but we have a new web app for the Asian film community. Uh, film, television, dance, we're kind of, we're building into everything in entertainment. And um, so if you go to asianfilmnetwork.com, sign up, you should be getting an email, an automated email uh, with some uh, a video to show you around the platform so you don't get confused. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's really complex of an app, but we want people to give it a chance. Give it a chance. If you can help me, um, I if I can, if you can please just help me, help me get this, um, this thing off the ground and uh it will make it's free it we don't, we're not making anybody pay for anything right now uh i just really want people to try it out it's buggy right it's it's in beta so i know things are not going to be perfect and you're going to run into issues whether it's through the app or something i'm missing right so um please look at it um we have it's so unique to every pro- profile it's um, we have over 400 different asian ethnicities and uh, nationalities we have everything like i feel i feel like um, we really want to get deep into the asian american community and see um the disaggregation of the data um, i'm really tired of seeing just like an east asian category or just japanese just like east um asians i really want to broaden the experience of what uh, it means to be asian in entertainment and asian as a diaspora in entertainment see how many different stories there is a wealth of different cultures and people and i want to be able, i want people to find each other 
I've been working on this app for weeks now, and I'm really working hard to uh, make it really for the community in a way that feels right. Um, but it's a it's way to build a community. Think of it like LinkedIn meets uh, Mandy, if you know what that is. It's the one of the uh, production websites um, for Asian Americans. And like you want to be able to communicate, post jobs, casting calls, um, looking for somebody in Iowa who you need a, um, a, a cinematographer for, who, who needs to has a drone. Um, I don't know. You can find those things all the time, but sometimes it's, um, you know, it's great to work with other Asian Americans in different areas, especially if you're a writer who wants to look for a director or a director who's looking for a cinematographer. Um, I've gotten messages uh, of people really just having a problem <laughs> um, working and working without Asians and looking, you know, really having a just wanting more community and um i think this is i want this to work uh if we can all work together to make it work it'll work but right now it's it's just (laughs) it's just beta so please um join the platform asianfilmnetwork.com sign up fill out your profile that's the way and that's the key for this to work um but I think you're going to like it. And I try to explain it on the video. And if you, I'll give you a hint now. If you want, if you want to search for something specific because you're um, just looking for somebody, right? In as a, a talented person who, you know, someone who's Asian who knows how to juggle. I don't know. We're trying to make it that, you know, that way you can search for everything in the profile. And um, we're, we're, you're given like a, a way to make yourself and create your platform for yourself so give it a chance uh give it a try we are you know wait for our emails um but i think this is really fun and it's something that i wish i had and i keep telling people and pitching it to people and they really like it i just want it to work is for us to all join in on it so um i know it sounds like culty or whatever but give it a chance give it a chance please give it a chance uh so again asianfilmnetwork.com and that's our show. So thank you so much for listening. My name is David Maria, and uh, thank you for my team again. And have a great week. Um, please go see Blue Bayou this weekend. Um, the 17th through the 19th is the opening box weekend. So please give it a gold open. Uh, give the show a chance. Thank you again, Focus Features, for this work. And have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.